You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, all cryptids are bashful. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook. Or send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.com. My name is Jim Newman, and with me today I have Laura Creek Newman. Hi. Lauren Bailey. Hello. And Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Today we are talking about Canada's history of policing, and specifically the intersection of policing and race. Policing, it turns out, <laughs> this may be surprising <laughs> to some listeners, uh, hopefully not too many, policing, as it turns out, is uh, pretty racist. So let's, uh, up front, uh, we're going to put a content warning right here. Uh, we are going to talk about policing. There are going to be some uh, quotations and we're going to paraphrase some things that are very racist. There is going to be discussion of police killings, recent and in the past. And discussions of cultural and actual genocide. So uh, listeners should be aware that that's what they're getting into. Uh, if you don't want to listen to that, I don't blame you. Uh, feel free to skip this episode. It's probably obvious to most of our listeners why we're talking about this right now. Uh, what with the uh, killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers just a few months ago, and the ensuing uprisings in several cities, uh, including the burning of a police precinct in Minneapolis, and also the ongoing uprising uh, in Portland uh, and uh, coincident suppression of the uprising by both local and uh, federal cops. As Canadians, we are often more engaged with news that's happening in the United States than things that are happening in our own backyard. And Canada's history of policing is uh, no less problematic. <laughs> so why don't we delve into Canada's history of policing and how that intersects with uh, racialized people with an emphasis on the policing of indigenous populations in uh, what is what we now call Canada. So we're going to start off with uh, Laura giving us a brief history of the RCMP. So the RCMP, or the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or more colloquially the Mounties, as many of us know them, this is Canada's national police force. There are, in a few provinces, there are provincial police forces as well. And of course, most cities, municipalities will have some police force of their own. But the RCMP is a national force. And they're pretty easy to distinguish, really. I mean, they wear bright red coats. They wear pointy brown hats. They ride horses. You know, they're... They're a thing. They're a real thing. They stand out. And people sure do seem to find them charming. They do. I mean, every year they host, well, not this year, but every normal year they host the RCMP musical ride. So they've kept horses, at least in a show capacity, as part of the force for as long as they've been a force, basically. So they tour the country and they do these horse shows every year and bring people out. They're a cultural phenomenon, and it's one of the few things that many Americans actually know about Canada. You know, they'll know about the Mounties. There was that show back in the 90s, Due South, that had a Mountie who was, okay, to be fair, I never really watched the show, but he was always wearing his red serge, which they generally don't these days, except for a few instances. So, you know, but yeah, it's, it's one of those Canadian cultural icons. So the Mounties have been around for about as long as Canada, or at least the startings of the Canadas as we are typically taught that it is, has been around as well since the late 1800s, the 1860s, 1870s or so. 
And it started off as the Northwest Mounted Police. So originally the whole point of the Mounties was to make a police force to sort of protect and ensure the the push west into what was then known as the Northwest Territories, which was basically everything west and north of Thunder Bay area. Mounties were sent out to what is now Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta. They set up forts there and like that. If you read the history of the RCMP from their own website, they talk a lot about roots of an institution and how many forts they set up and how many men were there. Because, of course, it was all men until 1974, I believe. And uh, building a legacy and, and merging with the Dominion Police, which was the police force in the original four provinces of Canada. And so on and so forth. They really don't talk a lot about what the RCMP was actually doing as they pushed west there. So this is something that I've only started learning about more recently as I've become an, an adult, but I certainly didn't learn about it in school. I want to bring up a Heritage Minute again because <laughs> they're the best. <laughs> um, so is anyone familiar with uh, the Sam Steele Heritage Minute? Yeah, I think so. The the They confiscated the guns at the border one? Yes. The idea behind this one is that it's in the the late 19th century, I think it's 1898 or something like that, and the vignette opens with uh, a Mountie escorting this prospector uh, out of the Canadian territories there, and he's grumbling and grumbling. Oh, he sits there in his red coat all spitting polished. And he says, you see what happened in the interaction. And so he was prospecting on Canadian land and he had guns and gambling things, which is apparently really terrible at the time. And uh, they caught him and they told him to go back. And this prospector is American, I should have said. I'm an American. You can't do this to me. Returns to the American prospector on the horse and he's going, I, he didn't even pull a gun. Never drew no gun. I could have shot that guy right there. Who was he anyway? And so it's all about this Mountie Sam, Sam Steele. Of the Northwest Mounted Police. Who was an important part of protecting those territories and did it without force and blah, blah, blah. Men don't wear pistols in Canada. So when I was younger, when I saw these moments, that's what I thought that the Mounties were doing. Yeah, they're protecting the Canadian territories from these awful American prospectors <laughs> that wanted to steal the <laughs> land. <laughs> There's gold in them there hills. <laughs> right? <laughs> because that's what the Heritage Minute taught me. So both of these men were white, and there's no mention in that one at all about Indigenous peoples or about the RCMP's long, long history and actual mission regarding Indigenous peoples in Canada. I also noticed this when I was looking through the official histories for uh, the things that I was talking about. It's like, oh yeah, this is just 100% glossed over. It is. And when you look at the web page for the RCMP that talks about their relationship with Indigenous peoples, it is very whitewashed. Here, uh, let me read some snippets here. It gives a bit of a timeline here. So, of course, it talks about... In 1874, the Northwest Mounted Police deploys to Western Canada. It employs Métis as guides and interpreters. And then, oh, more scouts and guides and interpreters. See, we've been working with the people living there, right? See? Yeah. Guides and interpreters sounds really good. The the whole page is just like, we employed them in all these different ways and gave them official titles. Yeah. The RCMP as job creators. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, in 1877... As one of the two treaty commissioners acting for the Crown and the Government of Canada, Northwest Mounted Police Commissioner James McLeod negotiates and signs Treaty Number 7. So that was during the time of the Sioux Wars between the Sioux Nations in now South Dakota and the U.S. government. Basically, the, the Sioux peoples were, were standing up to the government and saying, no, you can't take our land. This is our land. They were really standing up to the U.S., basically. I am not doing this history justice. Please look it up. Look for Sitting Bull, who was the leader in this case, and you'll learn more. So 
the chief Sitting Bull, he did befriend a couple of Mounties who helped him come into Canada. But then when he and his peoples arrived in Canada, Canada was like, yeah, no, you can't have food and you can't have land. So sorry. Whatever those Mounties told you doesn't hold up. And eventually they had to go back to the U.S. and deal with the U.S. who had been terrible to them and uh, force them into reservations not on their traditional lands. There's also a heritage minute about this. The grandmother's medicine house is no place for lies. Not two more words. This country does not belong to you. It does talk about Sitting Bull highly. We will stay here and keep the grandmother's peace. She will let us raise our children. We do not want lies. It makes a note of how the positive friendship portrayal of the Mounties with Sitting Bull actually didn't turn out so well because he and his people were not actually helped by Canada. These men, Walsh, McLeod, they're the first white men who, who never lied to us. I didn't know then that they'd be starved out of Canada and go back to the States. Walsh would resign over it and Sitting Bull would be murdered. But I don't think it does the whole situation justice. So all that the RCMP says is they, oh, they signed this treaty. They didn't talk about how their members didn't help and the government was awful and, and all of this kind of stuff. So it's very, very whitewashed here. So why does the Northwest Mounted Police exist? Well, like we said, they wanted to expand into the West. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to take those lands from anybody who might have been living there and make sure that they became part of Canada, the Commonwealth, uh, the Canadian colonies, whatever you want to call it. Does anybody know where this idea came from to have this police force that, that did that, that sort of ruled by force and took what they wanted? The Irish Constabulary. Yes. I only know this because I was reading it today. <laughs> yeah, me too, <laughs> for sure. So this was dreamed up by our not-so-beloved First Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald. E-I-E-I-O. And he, he took this idea directly out of that playbook. So for anybody who's not familiar, the Irish Constabulary was a paramilitary-type force that was developed by Britain and put in place in Ireland to basically control the Irish and to quell any uprisings or any uh, revolutions, any talk of separation there. What's interesting about this is that police forces in the rest of the UK, especially at that time, were not armed. But this force was. So there was always that extra threat there because there were weapons involved because of the military like training and atmosphere that was involved and that's very much the type of situation that happens in the RCMP and and that's how the RCMP was developed so their job was to take the northwest territories and though it was said to help negotiate treaties those treaties were never meant to benefit anyone except the british and they were being negotiated at the point of a gun. In some instances, in other instances, there was lying. In other instances, there was just so little understanding that the treaty is basically useless. So right from the very beginning, the RCMP's reason for existing was not to be in harmony with the Indigenous peoples living in Canada. It was always confrontational because their job was always to take something that did not belong to them and to then enforce that. And to control the people to whom it rightfully belonged. Yes, definitely. Basically, that never really stopped. Just like a lot of these awful systems, if they haven't been abolished, they've just changed names or changed shape, but they've continued, whether it was forcing people through starvation or um, at gunpoint or whatever it is off of their land into reservations or whether it was enforcing certain laws that were inherently unfair and and restrictive or, or whatever it is. That's always been a part of the job of the RCMP. Ashlyn, did you want to talk more about not just uh, the taking of the land, but the controlling of the people? Yeah. Unless uh, Jim has any other sort of segue you'd like to insert here. Eh. Laura took care of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So 
After the Northwest Resistance in 1885, the pass system came into force in Western Canada, where Indigenous people had to present a document authorized by a so-called Indian agent in order to leave their reserve. Can we provide listeners with context on what the Northwest Resistance was? No. <laughs> no, we should have taken Canadian history like I did. I also feel like I, I wish that the Canadian history course that I was forced to take in grade 10 had been more engaging. Mm. Yeah. It was mostly like, here is a list of battles that you need to memorize. And it's so much more interesting than that. And um, I've been reading quite a bit of the Canadian encyclopedia.ca today, mm -hmm. which is uh, surprisingly well done and well written. Like it, it feels, you know, not biased in favor of white Canada as much as I would have expected from some place called the Canadian Encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember doing terribly in Canadian history. Like I was getting 60% in the course overall at the time of the final exam. And I did, I maybe needed 70% to pass or something. Um, and so I studied the shit out of that exam. And there was a few bonus questions. And one of my proudest moments of high school was getting 103% on the exam. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled it out in the end. <laughs> nice. I feel similarly about Canadian history. I always thought it was because of French immersion, but I felt like I learned a lot about the fur trade, mm -hmm. a very little bit about like early Canadian American interactions, and it stopped at 1867. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, and that's it. That's all the history you have to take. And I'm like, what? <laughs> And again, it like it left out so much nuance, so much important things. Like again, fur trade, just like beaver that's all, pelts, that's over all and I over and of over. Canadian history, as far as it was, as it was taught in school, it was just like les voyageurs and fur trade. Yeah, and that's it. I read the Plains of Abraham in grade eight. And I remember reading Spirit of the White Bison. Was that what the book was called? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so the Northwest Rebellion or Northwest Resistance, uh, was a five-month insurgency against the Canadian government, headed up by Métis and First Nations peoples in Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba. One of the most well-known figures from it is Louis Riel, and they got beat down by a bunch of uh, RCMP and Canadian army that were brought in from the East to settle the conflict so that the West could continue to be colonized. I do remember the uh, Louis Riel Heritage Minute. I forgive them with all my heart as I ask God to forgive me. The verdict is clear. You're guilty of high treason. But let them remember that I struggle for the Métis, for the people of Manitoba and the Northwest. There can be no excuse for the what Métis are not birds. Requires you to answer for it. We have a right to God's lands. And at the end of it, he was hung at what continues to be the RCMP training grounds in Regina. Uh, and that is one of the only things that we learn about in uh, Canadian history. There's fur trade, and then there's the rebellion, and then modern Canada. Done. Yeah. Everybody just got along. <laughs> Those indigenous people stopped causing trouble, and everything was great. It's kind of how the narrative goes. <laughs> Good context, for, especially yeah. for our American listeners. Uh, so, during and after the Northwest Resistance, the colonial powers were quite concerned that more conflict was on the horizon and they sought to keep as many Indigenous people on their reserves as possible to prevent them from joining up with the conflict or from, uh, again, creating more. The past system was never actually enacted into law, but its effects were far-reaching, uh, and any Indigenous person caught without a pass could be arrested or forcibly returned to the reservation. The past system was explicitly to control the movement of Indigenous people, to prevent large gatherings and therefore further resistance and conflicts. Uh, so they figured if Indigenous people could not gather in large groups, they would not be able to amount any sort of resistance to colonizer rule. Uh, it was also to prevent the practicing of cultural and religious ceremonies like Sundance and Potlatch. Uh, it was used in conjunction with things like residential schools to assimilate Indigenous peoples and extinguish their culture. Prior to the Northwest Resistance, the beginnings of what would become the past system were already in place. Colonial officers were concerned that Indigenous people might form alliances 
maybe with each other, maybe across the border with the U.S. With Because, of course, the border with the U.S. is a totally non-natural line in the sand. And for the rest of history, Indigenous peoples had crossed that border with impunity and had friends and family across the border. So possibly they would ally with them. Or they might join forces with just anybody but the Canadian government. This was a big concern for the Canadian government. (laughs) (laughs) So they used vagrancy laws, which uh, were then and continue to be now used against anyone who was seen as undesirable to restrict large groups from leaving reserves and to also specifically discourage Indigenous women from camping outside white settlements. Uh, So Indigenous women would set up their teepees outside of white settlements and keep the home there while uh, the men were away on business. And this was seen as a threat to colonists. (laughs) Those scary women folks setting up outside our borders. So they came up with a plan. Indian agents would be allowed to issue teepee owners permits that would have to be produced if requested by what was then the Northwest Mounted Police. And if they were not presented, they could be removed under the Vagrant Act. So initially, these passes were just for teepee owners, where you could set up camp. Naturally, obtaining one of these passes was very difficult, since the object was to keep them away from these places, not to allow them to camp there. So yes, during and after the resistance, uh, colonial powers very concerned that there was going to be more conflict. They wanted to keep everybody away, even though even most Métis people didn't actually join in in the fighting. They mostly kept to their own farms and were basically just hoping that it would pass and that they would be allowed to keep their farms. That's all they wanted. Keep their farms, be allowed to go about their business. No such luck. Um, In July of 1885, a month after the conflict ended, a man named Hayter Reed, Assistant Commissioner of Indian Affairs, penned a memo that is known as the Memorandum on the Future Management of Indians. And this included the... Uh, framework for the past system. The memo is basically, here's how we're going to keep the uh, indigenous people apart from one another. Here's how we're going to steal their culture. And here's how we're going to get rid of them so that we can colonize everything. Hayter Reed admitted to a colleague that he was aware that the past system wasn't actually supported by any laws, but quote, his actions were justifiable because they were for the greater good So starting in 1886, various Indian agencies across the country, uh, and these Indian agents were on all of the reserves, they received books containing passes. In order for an Indigenous person to leave their reserve, they needed a pass signed by the Indian agent stating when they could leave, uh, where they could go, what they could do there, and how many days they had to get back. The uh, Canadian Encyclopedia page that we will link in the show notes has a few pictures of them. Uh, and they were also there was also a line for how many guns they were allowed to bring with them. <laughs> uh, of course, getting a permit was quite an ordeal. Even though there were Indian agents assigned to each reserve, they were hard to get to. So you would have to travel to their house. And if he wasn't there, you'd have to wait for him or come back another time. There was no guarantee that they would uh, grant you the pass either. They didn't have to have a good reason. They could simply choose not to. So if you were on the bad side of this Indian agent, sorry, you don't get to leave ever. So besides just the, like, psychological impact of never being allowed to leave your, you know, small piece of land, there were many impacts on different various parts of daily life. So if they wanted to sell their produce, which they were farming at the market, uh, they would have to harvest all of their produce go to the Indian agent, ask for a pass. If they didn't get it, their produce would spoil. They also would, it would be a lot harder where and when they could go to sell things uh, was very unequal from their, from the white settlers, of course. Uh, And this was further impacted by laws like the peasant farm policy. And so this peasant farm policy prohibited indigenous farmers from using mechanized farm equipment so only white settlers were allowed to use mechanized farm equipment. What possible, like, I, obviously the reason is racism, but what, what justification is there for that? Yeah, I have no idea. I didn't look into it any further than that, but it's just absurd on its face. Is this like those rules around treaties? I might be off, but it's like you only get certain amounts of money guaranteed to you if you live in the traditional way of life. And that includes like 
no running water, no electricity. Oh yeah, no gas that could be things. part like, of the ridiculous reason. Like, is it one of like they they take traditional incredibly strictly, mm-hmm. but yet like the dollar amount, they're like, oh no, there was no inflation back then, so we're not gonna adjust <laughs> for that. I'm just gonna look it up really quick because yeah, what a what a terrible thing. Okay. The rationale was that Aboriginal farmers should be taught to cultivate land using simple implements on small plots of land. In combination with the severalty policy, which reduced the number of acres that a First Nations farmer could put into production, peasant farming severely limited output primarily to subsistence levels. So it was just to keep them, you know, from gaining any wealth at all, ever. And also kept them on the reserve, because then they have fewer reasons to leave if they have nothing to sell. And mm-hmm. Oh, so it, it's part of the whole ridiculous notion the what's it called that theory that people progress from like savagery to civilization oh god yeah whatever that ridiculous theory is they were the theory was well they have to experience subsistence farming before they can go on further otherwise they won't progress properly except they were clearly doing it just fine (laughs) i mean but as far as european people were concerned indigenous people didn't know how to farm because they you know were not farming in the way that white settlers understood farming. And good good thing that uh, Europe never benefited from any exchange of technologies <laughs> from other parts of the world. Right. Well, also, it's so absurd because so many of the people who got homesteads from Europe didn't know anything about farming. They starved. They failed because they weren't mm-hmm. farmers. They were just getting free land. So it's not like they were better because they were white. Yeah, totally ridiculous. So, of course, the police system in Canada was responsible for making sure that this past system was enforced. The problem is that, again, it had no basis in law at all. It was basically just uh, a few people who were like, this would be a good idea to keep them apart. (laughs) Well, it's it's a good thing that the police only follow legal procedure and never do things that are against the law. So. <laughs> yeah. So it didn't stop them from, from enforcing this ridiculous thing. This guy, Reed, sent a letter to Sir John A. Macdonald E-I-E-I-O. and was like, hey, this would be a good idea, right? And just in, enacted it before he even got a response. Um, <laughs> but then Macdonald, I guess, wrote back and was like, sure, sounds good. But again... No one ever made a law about it. It was just like, yeah, these couple of white guys decided that this sounded like a good plan. So religious ceremonies were already outlawed by the Indian Act. But the past system ensured that people from different reserves couldn't get together to practice their culture. And some ceremonies have survived to this day, despite these laws and practices. But the effect on other aspects has been that of erosion of culture and eradication of certain things that were culturally important to various indigenous groups that are now lost. The past system also worked together with residential schools because if you had your children taken away to a residential school by the police and then the police said you can't go visit them, obviously that had an impact on families uh, being kept apart for years and years. But it also impacted family life in that many indigenous people had families on lots of different reserves. And of course, reserves are these little parcels of land that are weirdly broken up over the landscape to ensure that none of them were on decent land. Uh, So if you had family on different reserves and you couldn't visit them, that was, you know, a huge intergenerational trauma of being forced apart from your extended family. Mm -hmm. So lots of different horrible effects that still have ripples today. It quite quickly became known that the past system was toothless. So indigenous people knew that there wasn't a legal leg for this to stand on. But that, of course, didn't stop the police from arresting them if they were off of the reserve without a pass. And the problem was that the Indian agents who issued these passes had tons of power over people on reserves. So they didn't want to make waves, get on this guy's bad side, or resources would be withheld even more than they already were. So even apart from the police, the Indian agent system was a big deterrent to like even just trying to carry on normal life, despite the fact that this was a totally lawless bullshit system. The past system was gradually phased out throughout the 1930s, uh, although it was still being enforced occasionally into the early 1940s in some areas. 
It, of course, created extreme distrust, brought about socioeconomic inequalities, and destroyed cultures. And it was all enforced by the RCMP, and they 100% gloss over this in every official history I could find. Yep. So the pass system ending in the 1930s, you said? Mm-hmm. So on the RCMP's official website, they note that in 1933, RCMP officers became truant officers on residential schools. Mm-hmm. So they stopped policing the adults and really enforced it on the kids. Yeah. And I believe we covered some parts of the atrocity that is residential schools in another episode, but I'm not sure they're truly horrible. Did we or did we just talk about doing that? I think we may have just talked about doing it. Um, it like it has probably come up uh, on the podcast before. Uh, I feel like on our eugenics episode, mm-hmm. uh, when I talked about scientific racism, it's not a eugenics episode. When we talked about the intersection of race and science, I think that residential schools came up because, it, you know, it was related to the eugenics push. <sighs> you know, this is episode, um, what, uh, 159? So... Hard to keep track at this point. <laughs> the the quick pull quote from, I think, Sir John A. Macdonald is that the residential school was to take the Indian out of the child so that they could be assimilated. So just pure genocide. Yep. Uh, that is basically the end of my segment, so. Thanks, Ashlyn. Good luck piecing that together into something that ends. <laughs> okay, well, I'll just I'll just bring up the music. I can't think of a segue. talked about the history of the RCMP and how they moved from policing the land to more policing the people. So what's happening today? Laura's really the host of this episode. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. The fact that I have to do this topic disgusts me, but it doesn't surprise me. The fact that, for research time purposes, I had to shorten the list I am highlighting to mostly people murdered by Canadian police in 2020 That makes me sick to my stomach. In addition to our content warning, at the top of the show, I have another one for my segment. Though I don't go into graphic detail, some of the descriptions of these murders are disturbing and extremely difficult to hear. Listen accordingly. Because I can, I have chosen to mention people murdered by Winnipeg or Manitoba police forces as far back as we have competent records, which is 1988. Sadly, but not surprisingly, The reported numbers have skyrocketed in the last 10 years, Canada-wide. What I can't tell is whether this increase is due to more reporting and oversight, the rise of civilian video and self-reporting tools like social media, or the increased militarization of Canadian police, not on par with, but damn close to, the similar militarization in the United States. My cynical but educated guess is all three. Also implicated are the socio-economic factors like increased wealth disparity, a lack of a social safety net, cross-generational trauma that is compounded since the first European settlement at what is now Point Royal, Nova Scotia in 1604, and, of course, regular, ugly, old racism towards Indigenous people in Canada that we white folk love to sweep under the rug when we compare ourselves to the United States. Because, as we've heard from Ashlyn and Laura already in this show, anti-Indigenous racism is not only a part of the modern policing system, It's a primary ingredient of the whole damn thing. Wikipedia has a handy list of people murdered by Canadian police. This list does not include people who died suspiciously while incarcerated in Canada. That is an equally huge and disgusting topic that requires its own deep dive. I don't rely on the accuracy of these numbers from any time prior to the last five years, but their reporting shows a pattern. From 1932 to 1979, there were apparently eight people murdered by Canadian police during police actions. One of these, Norman Ryan, in 1936, was killed by police bullets at a liquor store. (laughs) Jeez. I'm not sure how the bullets managed to take down a 41-year-old man all by themselves, but that kind of passive wording is not unusual in this list. Or reporting on police violence. Officer-involved shooting is the uh, common phrase. Halfway down this list, they just stopped putting in the verbs. They didn't put in killed or shot or anything, just a listing of names. 
From 1980 to 1989, there were another eight people reported murdered by Canadian police, including our first listing of a Manitoba man, J.J. Harper. Harper's 1988 death produced public outcry that helped lead to the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry, which concluded that the police officer had used excessive force. From 1990 through 1999, there were a reported 31 killings by Canadian police, including at least four people who were living with mental illness and one unnamed man who was summarily executed for shoplifting a pair of jeans. Between 2000 and 2009, 49 people were murdered by Canadian police, including two 17-year-old children, these were separate instances, and at least four people who were knowingly living with mental illnesses and had had the police called on them for welfare checks. Two of these 49 people killed by police were in Manitoba, including Matthew Dumas, who was 18 and shot while carrying a screwdriver, and Ahmad Salah Azad, who was 61, and a resident of a lodge for seniors or people with mental or physical disabilities. Both Dumas and Saleh Azad were suspected of illegal behavior, but keep in mind, Canada does not legally punish people with the death penalty, especially for property crimes, as Dumas was suspected. As we count up the 20 teens, the numbers leap upwards. Between 2010 and 2019, 183 people were killed by Canadian police. For those keeping track, that's 3.37 people killed by police for every one person killed by police in the previous decade. Again, these are the ones we know about. And I want to remind our listeners that these are only the killings. This is not a list of people who were shot at, or tased, or beaten, or roughed up, or treated to a blanket party. It's not a list including those who survived. These are only those who were murdered in cold blood by people who presumably exist to make Canada safer. 11 of these 183 people murdered in the last decade were in Manitoba. At least 8 of those 11 were Indigenous. One who wasn't, Mature Madut, was a member of Winnipeg's South Sudanese community and was killed during a mental health crisis. One of the eight Indigenous people murdered by Winnipeg police was Cody Severite, who, in 2017, was 23 when he was killed in a hit-and-run by an off-duty Winnipeg police officer who was driving 90 kilometers per hour in a 50 kilometer per hour zone while highly intoxicated. The officer waited 12 minutes and a drive of several kilometers to inform anyone that he had hit someone with his car, and the breathalyzer wasn't administered for over an hour after that. Of course not. Cops protect their own. And I couldn't find this today, but in the initial reporting, I heard that it was administered by his partner. But I can't verify that today. There are lots of things that are uh, disgusting uh, about the way policing is done but the closing of the ranks and the the way police protect each other is the thing I think that most convinces me that there's there's nothing to salvage here. Abolition is really the only choice. Yeah, there's been some really good reporting about police unions in particular. Mm-hmm. Like how they basically just exist to get them out of the trouble that they get themselves into. I'm a union man myself, and a police union is not a union. AFL-CIO should kick the cops out. We are now eight months into a new decade. There have been 31 people murdered by Canadian police so far in 2020. The previous most deadly years, 2019 and 2017, had 35 such murders each. In a space of 10 days in April of this year, Winnipeg police killed three people. These three murders were on top of a March 10 murder of an unnamed man, also by Winnipeg police. On April 8, 16-year-old Aisha Hudson was shot and killed by police following a police chase through Winnipeg. Aisha was accused of robbing a liquor store, which, the last time I checked, was not an indictable offense punishable with a death sentence, but a summary conviction with a fine, especially for a minor. Mere hours later, in the morning of April 9, Jason Collins was shot and killed following a domestic incident call to Winnipeg police. Jason was 36. Ten days later, on April 18, Stuart Andrews was killed by Winnipeg police who were responding to a reported robbery. Stuart was 22. A 16-year-old boy was also injured by police in the same confrontation. Again, neither domestic dispute nor robbery is punishable by death under Canadian law. For our listeners who weren't aware, 
Canada officially abolished the death penalty July 14, 1976, and the last official executions were carried out in 1962. Forgive my editorializing, but since the courts stopped, the police seem to have taken the duty of summary executioners onto their own overly full shoulders. Speaking of duties that no police force is equipped to handle, at least two of the 31 murders by Canadian police forces in 2020 were committed during wellness checks. On June 4, in Edmonston, New Brunswick, police shot and killed 26-year-old Chantelle Moore while performing a wellness check as her boyfriend in Toronto was worried that she was being harassed. Chantelle had recently moved to New Brunswick with her five-year-old daughter and was originally from a First Nation on Vancouver Island. According to police, she brandished a knife at them in her apartment. A police officer, who, remember, was there to see if she was okay, shot her five times. Edmonston police do not wear body cameras, nor did the officer attempt any non-lethal force. As of July 2nd, the unnamed officer is back on active duty. Sixteen days later, on June 20, Ijez Ahmed Chowdhury, who was 62, was killed by Mississauga police when they were conducting a wellness check on him. Ijaz's family had originally called a non-emergency hotline, but paramedics who responded called police after seeing that he had a pocket knife. Members of the Chaudhry family asked if they could help de-escalate the situation, but were denied by the police, who then scaled his building, kicked open his door, and tased him, before shooting him with both plastic projectiles and then live ammunition. The officer who killed Ijaz Chaudhry has refused to speak to investigators. How is that allowed? I don't know. Apparently they have the option. That's... no. Police unions. Yep. Prior to these wellness check murders of both Chantelle Moore and Ijez Ahmad Chowdhury, Regis krachinsky Paquette's mother called Toronto police to assist after Regis instigated a domestic incident due to her mental health issues. Regis's mother and brother were in the apartment building hallway when they heard Regis call for help, and then they heard silence. Police came out of the apartment to say that she had fallen from the balcony of their 24th story suite. Regis's death is not on the list of confirmed murders by Canadian police because police are insisting that she jumped to her death. Videos and interviews with other residents have not been released by the Special Investigations Unit. The murders of Chantelle Moore and Ijaz Chowdhury, as well as the suspicious death of Regis Korchinski Paquette, have all sparked protests and added to the calls for defunding or disbanding police forces across Canada. A study published July 10 by CTV News showed that of the 15 largest cities in Canada, between 10 and 25% of these cities' budgets went to their police forces. Anyone want to hazard a guess what Winnipeg's is? 25. Yeah. It's humongous. 26. Ooh. 26%. It is $304 million. Yeah. That's why we can't fix roads or have community centers. Our combined community services budget, so everything else to help people, is $115 million or about 10% of the total Winnipeg budget. There, there, there has been rebar sticking out of the road, like right near our house, right at the corner where Kira gets on the bus, for nine months. <laughs> yep. But cops still get their cash. You know, I know this has been pointed out before, but the only thing the police are actually good at is racism. Like, they're not good at wellness. They're not good at stopping... I mean, okay, they do stop some crimes. Like, there are some... Things that come out of they it. They occasionally like, solve crime. Yeah, they rarely solve stop crime. it. Well, I mean, if they, like, they, you know, figured out there was, like, a ring or something like that, occasionally they, like, sure. s- stop less, that. Less than 2% happening. of property crime is solved. Right. So a lot of the stuff that they're going to get a lot of calls on, they're just not good at. They're never trained for nope. it. And they're just terrible. And we just keep asking them to do it. And the grocery stores are employing them as uh, as uh, security guards now in Winnipeg. And that's how they get their overtime. Yeah. Just today, in early August, Winnipeg City Councillor Kevin Klein tweeted that he was not in favor of discussing dismantling the police, despite more than 113,000 Winnipeg citizens signing a petition for defunding and abolishment. Money spent by cities and provinces on the constant militarization of Canadian police could be far better spent on reinforcing the social safety nets, providing trained mental health supports, as Laura was saying, implementing a universal basic income, and combating the root causes of poverty, crime, and discontent. 
that money could be better used to help heal and reconcile with displaced Indigenous people that Canada as a country is so keen to ignore. Hell, piling it up and burning it would be a better use than spending one cent towards a service that murders the people it has sworn to serve and protect. How do we transition, Jim? We transition with musical bumpers. That's what they're there for. (laughs) It's crime fighting time. So, I think it's good advice. I would implore you, if you're in a situation where you think it's appropriate to call the police, think twice. Because somebody might end up dead. There are many good resources online for what to do instead of calling the police. Look them up before there is a situation in which you might be tempted to call the police and uh, think about them so that you are prepared in case that that ever happens. Why don't we put some in the show notes? Well, why don't we end the show on a positive note? I have renamed our what have you been enjoying lately segment because that is quite the mouthful we're gonna call it something nice we're gonna end the show with something nice before we talk about something nice we should do one more shout out to um alex s vitale's uh, book the end of policing which uh you can find from verso i think it's from verso press it is a great resource on the the history of policing and what we should do instead of policing moving forward and uh also um robert evans of the behind the bastards podcast had a sub series that he uh just finished recently uh called behind the police you can find that if you search behind the bastards on any podcast uh laura and i both listened to it uh it i think it was very good very good very helpful yeah, it gives you, it focuses uh, a fair amount uh, on uh, American policing, but also gives you kind of a wide view of the origins of modern uh, metropolitan police systems um, beginning in uh, Great Britain. Uh, excellent listen. So now we're going to move on to something nice. So I'm going to go first, since uh, I'm editing this show and I didn't have a segment. My something nice is my brand new bike. <laughs> I am an avid cyclist, and I've been riding a Sakini from the 1970s for a decade now, uh, and it has seen some tumbles due, in some cases, to reckless driving, but due at least as often to the sorry state of Winnipeg streets, (laughs) as we have mentioned before. Um, And uh, sadly, I I popped a weld recently, and it looks like the frame uh, is was not salvageable. So I got a new bike. The bike is called it's gorgeous, uh, and it is uh, the the brand is All City. It is an All City Space Horse bike, classic, <laughs> classic tube design, steel frame, but with all the modern amenities. Gorgeous, uh, and I just I love it. Um, I have, you know, it it was expensive. It was an expensive week. I think. I think uh, within within a week or two, uh, we had to replace my my road bike, my phone, and our dishwasher. <laughs> wow, so, not fun. No. Uh, and uh, and uh, got to pay tuition fees right away. So, uh, but in the meantime, uh, you know, I've got a bike to get me to and from school. All winter long. Oh yeah, all winter long. <laughs> I a lot of school is going to be online, but there's uh, there's a fair number of in person classes, and I've got to attend the white coat ceremony. Uh, I think actually the day this episode comes out will be my first day in school as a medical student, so that'll be fun. Party time. I've also been uh, been watching videos from a YouTuber named Curio um, out of the UK. They are excellent. Highly recommend them if you're interested in, I don't know, their videos are kind of on similar topics to H-Bomber Guys, um, if there are any H-Bomber Guy fans, so maybe check out Curio if you're interested. Lauren, what's your something nice? Well, in about a week and a half, I turn 40. Woohoo! I've been looking forward to being 40 since I was about 16. I don't know. It'll be great! (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. You'll finally be the middle-aged person you've always been inside. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I've also recently downloaded The Sims 4, and I've been playing that 
in between reading books about anti-fascism and anti-racism. Nice. And how to save church collection plates. How about you, Laura? Something nice. Well, I got the chance to bake twice this week. I make sourdough bread. And my loaves today had incredible oven spring. They are so round. I've been struggling with this for a long time. And they're just these beautiful domed loaves. So hopefully they taste as good as they look. I was admiring them on the counter upstairs. (laughs) (laughs) It makes a difference when I actually have the time to put into the bread rather than like slapdash end of the night, hope it works out okay in the morning that I usually do. I'm on vacation this week, so I have the time, and it's really, really wonderful. I'm also reading the book Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings. It is really interesting. I'm only about halfway through, but I do highly recommend it. It puts a lot of things in context and and makes a lot of sense, so look for that. Ashlyn? Uh, My mother has decided that she's done giving gifts And instead, she gave me a gift card for my birthday, and I am using it to finally get the supplies to do silk painting. Ooh. What is silk painting? Like, just painting on a swatch of silk, or...? Yeah, so to make... What I'm going to use it for anyway is to make banners for our medieval camping kit. Ah. So... This past weekend, we were able to go to a very small gathering of uh, folks that participate in our medieval group. And uh, the banners are always so beautiful flying in the wind, and they add so much to the ambiance. And I'm looking forward to making some for our household so that we can also look beautiful when we're camping. (laughs) That sounds lovely. You always look beautiful. (laughs) Aww. And someone gifted me... Uh, like a few supplies and the frames that you need because you can't paint silk if it's sitting on a surface because it will just spread everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. You need to suspend it in some way. So I was gifted some frames and a few bits of materials, but the only colors of paint that uh, she was able to uh, send along were red and green. (laughs) So, uh, And I haven't been able to get any other colors of paint since so now i have a whole set and i'm looking forward to trying it out exciting yeah new crafts yay nice well thanks for thanks for sticking with us through this episode listeners what are we talking about next month ashlyn i don't know jam what are we talking about mm-hmm. oh do i have to pick again yeah Shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is the switch you've been bamboozled next month we're going to talk about spooky ghosts <laughs> Or something. Something like that. Okay. I would like to put a call out to our listeners. I found on Facebook or something a course which will give me a degree or a certificate in cryptozoology. And I think it would be pretty darn entertaining if each of us could find like a ridiculous course to take and review. (laughs) However, we're going to need... A little bit of cash to do that. <laughs> so if you want to see us take some cryptozoology classes or whatever else we can find on the wide world of the internet, please give a one-time donation. <laughs> yep. uh, you can go to lueepodcast.com slash support or donate. I think it's support. Or just go to lueepodcast.com and click on the button on the left-hand side. Uh, your support is greatly appreciated. We have uh, some contributors who support us every month. That keeps the lights on here, you know, pays for hosting fees. Although those are going to go up soon because we've been grandfathered into like an old storage clause that is a lot less expensive. But we have enough episodes now that we are about to have to start paying much higher fees. So, <laughs> oh no, any uh, any help that uh, our listeners uh, could provide would be appreciated because my income is negative now (laughs) so (laughs) uh and i'd like to extend a thanks to those listeners who have decided to contribute uh either a one-time donation or on an ongoing basis we really appreciate it i just want to be a bigfoot expert please help me listeners (laughs) please kick in for an episode of oh no gem and ashlyn (laughs) yeah (laughs) maybe i could find a homeopathy course oh (laughs) the idea of having to sit through like some other some bullshit medical lectures along with my actual medical lectures on Zoom. But think of all the pointed questions we could ask. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Is Bigfoot actually blurry? Good night, folks. Good night. Good night. Good night. <laughs>
Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. So we're going to start off this episode with uh, Laura giving us a brief history of the RCMP. How do you look surprised? I said twice that you were starting. (laughs) She was not paying attention. I have been distracted. (laughs) (laughs) Looking up from her phone in astonishment. (laughs) To be fair, I was reading a related article to make sure I had something right. Okay, well. Surprise, Pikachu, Laura. It's funny. I always, whenever somebody's talking, I'm always making eye contact with their with their picture unless I'm talking. And I even do it to Ashlyn, even though she's just like a, a, a photo. <laughs> my little spot. Yeah. <laughs> do you do it to my L there? I don't even have a picture. Where are the eyes on the L? <laughs> it's the top. It's just a nose. It's the two corners at the top. Humans are so good at making faces out of anything. Mm-hmm some reason my computer disconnected from the internet. That's okay. I had to choose a different hub. I don't blame it. It's a good choice. We were just talking about how the police need to be kicked out of the uh, overarching union that Jim is in. Oh, yeah. No, the police aren't in my union. I'm a wobbly. <laughs> oh, okay. But they, they should be kicked out of, uh, of a, any union affiliation. Hell, piling it up and burning it would be a better use than spending one cent towards a service that murders the people it has sworn to serve and protect. Do Canadian officers swear to serve and protect, though? <laughs> like, that was a punchy ending, but is it accurate? <laughs> <laughs> uh, who gives a shit? It's written on the side of the OPP police cars. That was the name of the Canadian cops show. Yeah, it was, actually. You guys remember that? Yep. Yep. Nope. It was yeah. called To Serve and Protect, yep. It was an Ontario version of cops. I was uh, chatting with This is going to be get cut out of the recording i was chatting with the you know a story's uh, gonna be good when yeah the <laughs> he was telling a story and he said i don't know what you guys think of police but in my experience and, and for as long as i can remember he has always had f- best friends who were in the opp um but but he said i don't know how you guys feel about cops but in my experience you know like they lie they always lie <laughs> I was like, hell yeah, brother. <laughs> Why don't we end the show on a positive note? What did I say I was going to call this segment? What, what have you, you been enjoying, enjoying lately? I think you just called it fun stuff. Fun stuff. Yeah, let, let's just call it fun stuff. What have you been enjoying lately is such a mouthful. <laughs> I also think it opens the door for things that maybe you aren't are not truly nice. enjoying, yeah. but are important. Like books or... about fascism. <laughs> right or you know for those days when you feel you have no joy in your life it allows you to participate Mm -hmm. so what did i say i was gonna call it something nice fun things fun things (laughs) your memory no let's call it something nice i like that so something nice are you still gonna talk about fascism no okay i was gonna (laughs) see something nice something nice it cuts out the hard stuff that (laughs) you might enjoy okay okay what are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? I don't know, Jam. What are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Oh, do I have to pick again? Yeah. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is the switch. You've been bamboozled. Okay, so, so I'm going to host next month as well, but then Lauren's going to edit. Right. Right? Okay. Yes. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Got to open up Slack so I can look at our topics channel. Man, we've done almost everything that's in here. Crap. I don't want to do any of these. <laughs> what do you want to do? What do I want to do? Oh, this could get really dark really fast. But I was thinking, oh, what are like old school parenting things that are like hilarious or something now? I'm just thinking of things like those wicker baskets that they used to have for cars for to put kids in instead of car seats. Um, 
Or we could talk about like hauntings. Yeah, that's always fun. Do, are there any that we haven't covered? <laughs> yeah. Uh, probably. Uh, okay, I'm just going to go. Uh, what, what do people want? Haunting? Do we want to talk about ghosts again? Or do we want to talk about uh, misconceptions and myths? I'd like to find like a, a haunting that has been explained. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'd like to find one of those to talk about. Just pure genocide. Hey, um, maybe we should record a content warning for the episode that I could put up top. Yes, that sounds like a gem job.